Okay, if you turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4, we're going to continue on in this wonderful chapter, one of my favorites in all of John. I, don't, I might say that all week, every week, don't I? I it's, it really is one of my favorites in the, the book of, of John. And if you recall last week, Jesus has had an encounter with a woman at a well in John chapter 4, um, and it was not an accidental meeting. If you recall, it was a, a divine appointment. He needed to be there. Uh, he had an agenda, and the woman, um, the meeting with the woman was meant to take place. And we looked at that encounter with this woman and, and sort of uh, left off not really knowing uh, where she was, if she had accepted anything that he had said, if she understood anything that he had said. If you recall, she came just to get water. She had her water pot there, and Jesus asked her for some water. And he used that as an uh, opportunity to sort of uh, preach the gospel, right? He was very creative. Told her that um, he had living water he could offer her, although he had no pot. And that confused her, and so thus the conversation began. But as we look in verse 27, we're going to look at 27 to 42 uh, today, something interesting has taken place. It kind of left on the cliffhanger. Uh, have you guys, I'm sure you're familiar with the phrase, timing is everything. Yeah? You guys have that phrase here. Timing is everything. Uh, meaning timing is a, a really, really important, uh, important thing. There were two phrases I heard all the time when I used to be in the acting industry. One was, it's not what you know, it's who you know. And the other was, timing is everything. Because it wasn't just a matter of who you know, knew, but you needed a break, and you needed to be at the right place at the right time. Timing was uh, everything. And those two phrases were the phrases that people passed back and forth all of the time. I, I'm going to show you today, beginning in verse 27, that uh, timing was very, very important in this incident. We'll just use this as a way of introducing. A look at verse 27. And at this point, his disciples came. And at this point, his disciples came. Came. What was the point that the disciples had uh, come? If you recall, the disciples actually weren't at the well. They were in the city buying food. Jesus was alone with the woman at the well. At the end of the conversation, look at verse 25. This is the, what the woman said to him. I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came. At this point. At this very moment. The phrase epitauta literally means at that very moment. That is an amazing statement of the timing of events. The disciples came back at the moment that Jesus declared his messiahship to a Samaritan woman. And this is not an incredible coincidence. This is timing. Um, had they returned earlier... Uh, they would have interrupted the conversation before it reached that dramatic conclusion with that declaration. Had they come later, they would have missed the conversation altogether. If you remember, Jesus needed to go through Samaria, right? Back in verse 4, you see that phrase, he needed to go through Samaria. And geographically, we talked about this last week, he's in Judea, Samaria is in the middle, he's going to Galilee. Geographically, okay, it makes sense, he needs to go uh, to Samaria, 
But the Jews didn't go through Samaria, right? They went around Samaria. They went through Perea because they didn't want to step foot in Samaria lest they be defiled by a Samaritan. But we're told Jesus needed to go to Samaria, but we find out that it's not because of geographical necessity. He needed to go because he had a divine appointment. And here Jesus sovereignly orchestrates the timing of events so that his disciples would not miss this conversation. And you look at verse 27 again. At that point, the disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. We discussed that as well, right? That in, in, in the prejudices of the day, men and women did not uh, speak to one another in public. Even husbands and wives, it was not a normal thing to see them speaking together in public, much less a Jewish man and a Samaritan woman. And so the disciples are marveling at the fact that Jesus is in conversation And the author adds this note, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? That's interesting. John is just writing down the the questions that may have been asked. Why is Jesus talking with her? We, you know, did after all go into the city to buy food. Did he need something else? Did we miss something? Why is he there? And we know as the readers, Jesus did have a reason to talk with her, didn't he? It was the whole reason, in fact, that they were in Samaria to begin with. So why did Jesus want his disciples to witness the end of that conversation? Well, that was what kept most of the Jews from Samaria to begin with, right? They were prejudiced against Samaritans. And we talked about that. That goes centuries back to when the the Assyrians had taken away the Jewish people in captivity, left some there, and brought back their own uh, people. They were pagan people. And they intermingled and intermixed with the Jewish population, became a a mixed race and intermingled worship of pagan gods with worship of Yahweh. And the Jews disdained them uh, for that. They had such a divide that the the Samaritans believed they could worship on Mount Gerizim. So they built their own uh, temple there. In the intertestamental period between New Testament, Old Testament, the uh, it's recorded that the Jews destroyed that, that temple as well. So this goes back centuries. They hate one another. They were prejudiced against them. And the gospel, while it would be preached to Israel first, in fact, Jesus even said that to this woman, right? He said, salvation is of the Jews, which is true. While it would be preached to them first, it was not exclusively for Israel. The Jews certainly did not understand that concept. The gospel would cross all cultural boundaries. I'll give you a a great Old Testament case in point. One of our favorite Bible stories, Jonah, right? What's Jonah commanded to do? In fact, who is Jonah? Jonah is a Jewish prophet of God. And he is told by God to go to this pagan city, Nineveh, and proclaim, right, what they need to do, which is repent because God's wrath is coming. Jonah doesn't want to do that. He goes the opposite direction. And so using a storm and a great fish, God gets him to where he needs to be anyway. And Jonah goes in there and proclaims what he needs to proclaim. And what happens? The people repent. And in chapter 4, Jonah's reaction is given to us. In chapter 4 of Jonah, verse 2, I have it for you today. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore, I fled previously to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. That's why I ran from you, God, because I 
I knew if I did this, you'd show mercy on this people, but they deserve judgment, God. You know, send the fire. That was the mindset of the Jews. The gospel, the gospel's for us. What are we doing in Samaria? Jesus has now some instructions to give to his disciples, doesn't he? We ended last service with three non-negotiable truths of salvation that were illustrated in the story, and I want to recap those for you today. Number one was that salvation only comes to those who recognize their need for spiritual life, right? You, you want living water, then you must recognize that you are thirsty and in need of living water. So salvation only comes to those who recognize that they're thirsty, that they need it. Number two, salvation only comes to those who confess and repent of their sin. That was addressed last week as well. So while Jesus offered the living water, he also did not let her slip by without addressing her sin, which we'll cover in a moment. And number three, salvation only comes to those who embrace Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the sin bearer. And we ended last week with him declaring who he was to her. What did she do with that? So today, as we jump into this message, let's see If any of those three things, three things we just went through, are evident in the life of the woman. And let's read through the passage today, starting in verse 28. The woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. Then they said to the woman, now we believe. Not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Let me pray. God, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the testimony that is here before us, and I pray, Lord, that we would see it afresh and new with spiritual eyes. Lord, there's much for you uh, for, that you have here to teach us today, much that we can draw upon. God, would you open our hearts and prepare the soil of our hearts to receive what you want us to receive today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, number one, I want you to notice here the belief of the woman. The belief of the woman. Does she have belief? I think so, and it comes to us in a very insignificant detail. Verse 28, the woman then left her water pot. Yeah, that's it. The woman left her water pot. What? Why is, why is that important? A couple things. That seems like a small, insignificant detail, doesn't it? 
But one thing is to remember is that this is, this is John writing this, right? Which means he was there because that's a detail only the author would remember to include. And he thinks it's important enough that he includes it. She came to the well to draw water, and she left without the water pot. The water pot was there. Obviously, the passage doesn't state the reason the water pot was there. But I think, I think John had a purpose in putting that little detail there. That woman had left the city. She had come to that well for the express purpose of drawing water. She had, draw, she had brought that empty water pot. And if you remember, her life was empty, wasn't it? It was an empty life. Like all of us, without Christ, it's an empty life, and we fill it. We fill the void with other things. And for her, what did she fill her emptiness with? Relationships, right? Relationships. She had tried again and again and again to find happiness, to find purpose in relationships. Jesus said, you have had five husbands, and the man you're living with right now isn't even your husband. He, he knew it. She didn't tell him that. He knew her heart. He knew her life. She had tried over and over again to fill the void with relationships. She, was, she, she had come to this well with an empty water pot, and she had come with an empty life. But when she encountered Jesus at that well, that water pot stayed there, and she went away full. You remember we looked at Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, where he talked about the reason God was angry um, with his people because they weren't coming to him, the fountain of living water. Instead, they were making their own cisterns, which were broken. They were leaking. And in the end, they had no water. That woman would come to the well all the time for water, and her life was always empty, whether she left with the water or she didn't. And so I think this woman... Water at this point, physical, literal water, is insignificant. <laughs> we, we need water, and I'm sure she drank water eventually. <laughs> but something else was more important then. She left that empty water pot there, and she went away into the city. So I think we see her thirst is quenched. Wasn't that the first thing? You must recognize your spiritual need, your spiritual thirst. Her thirst is quenched. I know I'm looking into that a bit, but this is John, after all, all right? And he adds that little insignificant detail. But we get more. Look on. Look at verse 29. So she goes away into the city and says to the men, verse 29, Come, see a man who told me all things that I ever did. What's the second non-negotiable truth? Confess your sins. Confess your sins. She goes into this city. Now, first of all, think about this. If you were, you encountered a stranger who knew everything about you, like Jesus did, that would be an unusual thing, would it not? You're waiting on the train platform and someone comes up to you and starts to spout your whole life and you've never seen this person before. Not an ordinary thing. So this woman has a, uh, an amazing encounter and it has such a profound impact on her. She doesn't hesitate to share the news. She heads into the city to tell uh, the men and perhaps even those who were familiar with her shameful reputation, perhaps. And here she speaks of a man who already knew everything she had done, and she, she speaks openly uh, about it. Because Jesus had talked to her, he had forced her to face the source of her struggles. And what was the source of her struggles? Herself. 
This woman's current life situation was not the result of misfortune, bad luck, um, bad circumstances. She was not a victim. No, she unashamedly confesses that this is a result of all things that I ever did. Whatever excuses she gave to those men before, well, that's just my lot in, in, in life. Oh, I had no choice but to do this. Oh, I was just forced to do this. She comes to them and says, Jesus told me everything I ever did. I did it. I put myself in that situation. Listen, that is not what we do as humans. We want to look for all the different things we can blame and point to. But ultimately, Jesus says, no, look here. Look at your heart. And he forced her to recognize that. I think we see that her sins are being confessed. She's unashamedly saying, I did all these things. And then in the second half of verse 29, could this be the Christ? Could this be the Christ? Just as Andrew told his brother Peter, we found the Messiah. Just as Philip told Nathaniel, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. She goes to them and says, could this be the Christ? Do you notice it's different, isn't it? She, she phrases her, her testimony in the form of a, a question, not a statement. Literally, the Greek construction implies a negative or doubtful answer. This man can't be the Christ, can he? I mean, it couldn't be him, right? Why does she do that? Is she unsure? Do we have two of the three non-negotiable truths, but the third, she's just not quite there? I don't think so. I don't think so. Who is this woman? If she were to go in there and say, that's it. I found the Christ. Come follow me. Who would believe her? See, the Samaritans had prejudices of their own, didn't they? No one would believe her testimony. And a moral woman? Jesus came to you? Of all the people? What? Go away, crazy lady. No. She says, this man, he knows everything I've done. He knows my sinful ways. He talked to me. So perhaps she, she shares it in this way to stir their curiosity without uh, causing them to reject what she said. And instead, she invites them to come see him for themselves. Come check him out yourself. You can, you can make up your own minds. But I think for that woman, he was the Messiah. But her best bet was to get them to him. That was her best bet. I think this woman at this point has become an evangelist. <laughs> You need to come see this guy. You need to come see this guy. Don't take my word for it. Go see him yourselves. So we see that her thirst was quenched. We see how her sins were confessed and her Messiah is embraced. I think I see salvation there. I do at least. And so what happens to the men? Then they went out of the city and they came to him. They at least were impressed enough with her testimony that they did decide to investigate. We'll look more in to this. And isn't it interesting that so many do reject the testimony of, of believers uh, without wanting to go investigate Christ for themselves, right? Uh, happy to reject the testimony. You might share of all the things that Christ has done in your life. You might share uh, the life you came from, and, but, but invite them to go test Jesus for themselves. Ah, yeah, that, well, that's not for me, right? Lee Strobel was like that. You know Lee Strobel, the author of The Case for Christ? Yeah, that book was uh, recently made into a major motion picture. Lee Strobel was an evangelistic, uh, um, not sorry, not evangelistic, um, investigative journalist. Uh, evangelism on my mind, apparently. <laughs> investigative journalist. And he, he, he was around believers. He was married to believers. And he was hearing the testimony all the time. 
He finally got to the point where he said, I have to investigate this myself. And when he did, when he went investigated, he had no choice. He said, no choice but to go, this is true. I, I cannot fat find facts that lead me to, 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 to come to a different conclusion. Jesus is the Messiah. So, one aspect is the testimony. The people need to see the Christ for themselves. But look what happens here. Look what John does here. He takes us and shows us the belief of the woman here, but then we cut back. And in verse 31, we're going to see the business of the disciples. Look at verse 31. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. Well, that's right, because the disciples had returned, remember, to Jesus, and the woman had left. But the narrative followed the woman into the city and her conversation with the men. We've forgotten what's been happening with Jesus in his conversation with his disciples. So John takes us here. What's been happening here? Well, at the beginning of the narrative, Jesus had sat down at the well. It tells us because he was thirsty. Well, Jesus was a man, fully man, as well as fully God. Of course he was thirsty. He's been walking a long time. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food, presumably because he was also hungry. And so now they've returned with the food. They urge him to eat, but something has changed. Jesus is not interested in food or drink here. Look at his response, verse 32. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. I have food to eat of which you do not know. Confusing, isn't it? And they were confused by this statement, just like the Samaritan woman was by Jesus' statement in in verse 10. If you remember last uh, week when he asked her for water and she was astounded that he was speaking to her. And in verse 10, he said, well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. She was confused about the living water, but it gave him an opportunity to speak further, didn't it? Well, these disciples are just as confused about uh, the food. Look at verse 33. Therefore, his disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? Like, what? How, could, how is he not hungry? I mean, did he, did he get Chinese takeout while we were gone? What, what happened here? Remember, the Samaritan woman misunderstood Jesus' statement because she was thinking materialistically and physically and not spiritually. His disciples are doing the same thing. Oh, where did the food come from? Apparently he got food. So Jesus needs to respond to them and teach them a critical spiritual truth. And that's what he does here. Look at verse, uh, look at verse uh, 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. This is an interesting statement. It's very reminiscent of Uh, What Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, I have it for you, but to set that up, uh, they're about, the children of Israel about ready to take the promised land in Deuteronomy. This is after the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. He's reminding them, he's reminding them what God had done through the 40 years. And he says this, so he humbled you, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. What Jesus says here is very similar to that, isn't it? And and Moses' point is this. You wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and yes, God gave you manna, which is food from heaven, really, right? He fed you, but he did that so you would recognize that it was more important to trust in him than even your, your daily sustenance. In fact, Jesus quoted the latter part of that verse from Deuteronomy um, when he was tempted by, by Satan. If you recall, he was fasting in the wilderness and Satan came to him and said, look at those rocks, why don't you turn them to bread? 
And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let me ask you something. If that's a spiritual truth that even Jesus himself needed to apply in a circumstance, do you think it's one we should too? Jesus had to apply that truth. Man, okay, man, man does not, not live by bread alone. He lives by every um, thing that comes from your mouth, God. Doing God's will must be the number one most important thing to us. That's what he's saying. You recall David said this in Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law it was, it is within my heart. That is a very important verse. Notice that he delights to do God's will. But why does he delight to do that? Because you might go, well, that's just David. Well, he delights to do that because of what's in his heart. Do you realize this? Do you, you delight to do what you do because it's in your heart to delight in doing that? Did I just confuse you? But do you get what I'm saying? Right? If you, if you have drink in your heart, you delight to go to the pub and drink. If you have gambling in your heart, you delight to go and gamble, right? If you have, if you have whatever you is in your heart, that is what you're going to delight to do. David delights to do God's will. Why? Because his law is within his heart. His law is there. Job said this. Job said this in 23.12. I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Do you treasure God's word more than food? I doubt very many of us go a day without food. In fact, we probably, most of us have several meals a day. We probably have a lot of food every day. Do you go a day without food? How about this? Do you go a day without being in God's word? Two days? Three? A week? You would never do that with food. But we do it with God's word. And then we wonder why we're delighting to do other things. Because we're not in God's word. And Jesus is telling his disciples, you know, you're, you're focused on the physical things. You're focused on these things. But I need to get a point across to you, right? Yeah, yeah I'm going to eat and yeah, I'm going to drink. But there's more important matters at hand. I do have food. I do have food. But it's a greater satisfaction. I'm satisfying a greater hunger and a greater need and a greater thirst than a burger will satisfy, right? That's what he's saying. Do you? Jesus was all about doing the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That was his father. And by proclaiming the gospel to one lost sinner, Jesus found more satisfaction than any physical food could offer. Do you remember Jesus' parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin? They come sort of on the heels of each other in scripture, right? Do you remember the outcome of the man who goes and finds the, the one sheep out of the hundred? It's in Luke chapter 15, verse 7. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. That's the result of that. How about the, the woman who found the one coin out of the 10 in the parable of the lost coin? It's in Luke 15, 10. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. There's greater joy here when we're about the work of the Father. And that was Jesus' work. It was consistent with the will of the Father. And accomplishing that will brought satisfaction to him. Do you find satisfaction in accomplishing the will of the Father? Do you know his will? Right? Those are questions to ask. Now, did Jesus never eat again? Of course he ate 
again after that. He ate food, but his, his need for food in that moment was eclipsed by the greatness of what had just happened with that woman. You ever had it, uh, something like that happen? You're hungry, but then something so amazing happens, you're like, I just forgot I was hungry <laughs> because that was incredible. That's what happened to Jesus. He is excited, and he wants his disciples to get excited too. So look at verse 35. He's going to have to explain further because clearly by the expression on their faces, they still don't get it. <laughs> Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And he who reaps, oh, well, actually, we'll stop there. They're already ripe for harvest. I think Jesus is doing here what he does so masterfully all through scripture. He's using his surroundings as an object lesson. He does it all the time, right? Walking by a fig tree. Oh, fig tree. Let me tell you a parable, right? Oh, a mustard seed. Hey, there's a guy sowing seed. Let me tell you the parable of a sower. He's, he does that all the time. I think a similar thing is happening here. They're at the well. They're outside the city. No doubt the fields are surrounding them. And he says, here, you know, let, me, let me give you an illustration. He wants to draw their attention to the fields that are around him to impress upon his disciples the urgency of, of reaching the lost. A farmer normally had a period of waiting, right, between the sowing and the reaping. That's the whole thing. You, don't you say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Now, John says four months. It's more like six months, so it might be of reference to the timing. In, in literally, like, when is the harvest going to come? It might be more like a December time frame here, and in four months, they're going to get the harvest. It might be a reference to that. But there's that period of waiting in the physical realm, agriculturally speaking. But in the spiritual realm, there is no waiting period necessarily. There, there's not a period of waiting that you have to wait. Okay, now we've got to wait six months. I've placed the seed, and we'll wait six months, and boom, we're going to have a harvest. That's not how it works in the spiritual realm. Could be instantaneous, couldn't it? And the harvest here has arrived with Jesus' mission. He says, behold, I say to you. Remember, way back when we started this whole book, behold is a pretty important word, isn't it, when, when that is said. When Jesus says it, I want you to look at this, he's saying. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look. He said, look, you're not looking right now. You're looking, you're looking with physical eyes. I want you to open your spiritual eyes. I want you to look. Look at the fields. They're already white. For harvest, all they had to do was lift up their eyes and look. And what's happening? What's coming toward them? Well, the men of the city, right? They had, they just come from the city. They're coming to the well. Uh, the, the woman's brought them. They're on their way. They're wearing white, right? They're coming to Jesus, right there. He says, "Look, look what's happening." I think it just. I think that's the picture. Their white garments set against the the fields that are ripe for harvest. You know, Jesus is saying, "Look around you and see people that have spiritual hunger. They're all around you." I don't need food right now. It's difficult sometimes, isn't it? But do you lift up your eyes once in a while to see God's kingdom and what God is doing in his kingdom? I tell you, more often than not, we're, we're focused on our own kingdoms, aren't we? My, my kingdom of Kevin, I'm really good at making sure kingdom of Kevin is doing well, right? I have my food. I have my sustenance. Make sure financially. I mean, I, I will look after kingdom of Kevin really well. But do we look after God's kingdom? What, what's happening in that kingdom? Have you ever even looked? That's, that's what he's saying. Look up, lift up your eyes and, and look. What is God doing in his kingdom? Who is around you? Who is he placed around you? What kind of divine appointments do we even miss all the time? Because we're just focused on our own kingdom, our own little realms, our own little speck of earth. We're so tiny and we think we're so big. I've got to build this. Listen, listen, we're, we're believers. We've, we've been in, we're introduced into the kingdom of God. Therefore, we should be seeing the kingdom of God and looking for it. And he's saying, listen, you guys, you're looking at the wrong things. Look up. 
They're coming right here. This is the harvest, he says. Look at verses 36 to 38. And he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labors. What's he talking about here? He's just further expressing uh, the analogy here. In the agricultural realm, the, the farmer, the same farmer who sows is probably more often not the same farmer who reaps the harvest, right? He goes and plants the fields, he does that, and then he goes and gets the harvest. But that's not necessarily the case in the spiritual realm. In fact, I would say probably not very even often the case. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 6 to 8. I have it for you here. He says this, I planted, I planted, Paul says, I did that. I planted the seeds, but Apollos watered. He's the one that came along and watered the seed. But God gave the increase. God is the one that caused the harvest. God is the one that caused the growth. So then neither he who plants, I, Paul, is anything, nor he who waters, Apollos, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. They're working together. They're after the same thing, aren't they? The sower often had the more, the more difficult time, spiritually speaking, because, because you may not see any immediate fulfillment. John the Baptist was certainly the case, wasn't he? He was not around at Pentecost to see 3,000 souls get saved. But that would be the harvest, would it not? Because he was the one that made the way ready, prepared the path. Others had sowed the seed in those Samaritan hearts. Uh, Moses, remember they were believers in the Pentateuch? Moses had, John the Baptist had, Jesus had. But the disciples, they would have amazing privilege of, of sharing in the harvest. The lives of those they never even sowed. They played no part in sowing seed there. And he's just saying, look around you, the harvest is ready. We'll eat later. I don't know how many years ago now, Calvary Chapel, Cardiff was started by, by Pastor John, right? But those are years of sowing. I can't imagine the early years there. That must have been difficult of sowing and sowing and sowing. And I don't know how much harvest he was able to see when he was there, but certainly he got to see it in his son's lifetime, right? His son came in and took, took over. And so harvest was happening. He's around to see that. What a blessing. But then Steve is there, and he's also watering the seeds. He's also planting his seeds and reaping the harvest of seeds that he never sowed, right? Now Steve is gone, and I, I have the extreme privilege of reaping a harvest from, from seeds he has planted and, and watered. But I'm also watering seeds that still need to grow, and I'm planting my own. And guess what? I'll be gone, and I'll have someone coming past me, and they will reap a harvest. And guess what? I rejoice in that because we're on the same team, <laughs> We're working together. And that's what he says. You know, not, there's one not greater than the other. You're sharing in the labors in this way. And it is a, a blessed thing. So he says, listen, you're missing the joy that's right in front of you. These guys are ready. They're coming to us. That's an incredible thing his disciples need to see. So that's the business of disciples. We saw the belief of the woman, the business of the disciples. Now let's see the belief of the Samaritans in verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. Why did they believe? 
through the testimony of the woman. Through the testimony of a woman. We can assume from, from that that she gave details of his supernatural knowledge, you know, more than just the summary that we got. You know, we don't know the whole conversation that was uh, taking place there, but they believed. They believed. And then we see it also comes through the testimony of Jesus. Verse 40, so when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his own word. Hmm. The testimony of the woman led the men of the city to invite Jesus to stay, literally abide. And he stayed and abided for two more days. And his message was the cause of their faith. Personal testimony plus the message of Jesus is still God's mean of salvation. He still does that today, right? He still does that today. You, you don't even know by sharing your testimony. You, you have no idea where, where that person has gone. Have they encountered Jesus? Possibly. Possibly you sowed a seed that someone else is going to reap a harvest from because the encounter with Jesus can happen. Certainly you present Jesus and all that, but they've got to meet him, don't they? Confrontation might even be the better word because that woman had to have a confrontation with Jesus. He showed her her sin and she responded with confession and repentance. Look at verse 42. Then they said to the woman, now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. Faith that's based simply upon the testimony of another would be a secondary faith, right? You have to have true faith that moves us to our encounter with Jesus, and that happened in the lives of these Samaritans. And through that encounter, we, we should come to see Jesus not, not just as the Savior of, of uh, the elite, uh, of those who we deem worthy of saving, but of the whole world. That, that's the point here, right? That's the point here. And remember, Jesus is in an area in Samaria where they don't even want to go. Jews won't go there because they're beyond saving. Jesus is in the heart of Samaria saying, I'm the Messiah. And guess what the response is from these people? You're the savior of the world. Why would they say that? They're not Jewish. All this time, they've been telling us the salvation is of the Jews. It's all theirs. You're you're saying it's for us too, Gentiles? (laughs) It's for all. It's for all. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. John writes this, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. He's the propitiation for our sins, but not just ours, not just us, not just those who uh, were were raised in the church can grasp these these concepts, right? Not those uh, well-to-do, but for everyone. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 14, he writes this, and we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. This is the same author. Those two verses are from John, the author of the Gospel of John. So obviously, John sees Jesus as the Savior of not just the Jews, uh, not just a, a group of disciples that chose to follow him, of guys who obviously deserve to be, to be saving. He says, no, the Savior of the world. 
And like we talked about or just touched on last week, as this woman, this untouchable woman was, was touched by Jesus, who are those people in your lives that are beyond your scope? The ones that maybe really don't deserve it. None of us would ever say that, but in our hearts, sometimes we act that way. Well, those people, I mean, gosh, they're doomed. Sometimes we're Jonas. Sometimes we are. We're like, well, I'd rather not go there. Just Let's just bring destruction upon them. They're stuck in their sin. No, he's the savior of the whole world, and they need to see it. Jesus had an incredible mission. He came and saw a woman who needed saving. The woman's testimony brought the men who needed saving. And who was there to witness that all? The disciples. They saw it happen before them. Boom, eyes opened. Wow, this is huge. The gospel is for everyone. And they've declared it. I pray that that would be your your heart, that you would open your eyes beyond the kingdom of of self. We're so so often closed into our ourselves, aren't we? We just we're really good at taking care of ourselves, and and then when problems arise, then we're just our eyes are automatically focused on self. But Jesus, he's saying, take it off of yourself and look. There's a bigger picture. There's a bigger world, and God's kingdom is big enough for all of them, as a world that needs saving. He's the savior of the world. So go, you have the living water. Offer the living water that Jesus offers to you. Say it's just as accessible to you as it was to me because I was a sinner, desperately thirsty, and my thirst was quenched by the living water. You can have that to do as well. You can have it today. You know people like that, don't you? You have relationships with people like that. You have encounters all the time. I urge you, look for those that are in need of saving because Jesus came to save them all. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this amazing encounter that is recorded for us in history. Jesus actually sat at Sychar in Samaria at a well with a woman. That actually happened. He offered her living water. And eventually she, she took it. And salvation came to the Samaritans that day. Many Many believed in him. I've got to pray that we would not miss opportunities like that. Opportunities that maybe don't come because we want to avoid a certain people or a certain place. Opportunities that, that don't come because we're too focused upon our own lives. Like Jesus' words to the disciples, we need to lift up our eyes and look. They're all around us, people in need of saving. And I thank you, God, that you came to save them all. Mm-hmm. You're a good God. We love you. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.